0: in Scotland, when friends get together they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions. Be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote, from accommodation to zoos. The chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a good blether.
1: And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode.
2: We love making the podcasts and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 23 of Scottish Blethers with... Liz Lister, Tongue Twister. And Helen. And I'm Susan. Coming up in this episode... I'm going to be talking about Schoon Palace. Helen, what are you going to talk about? I'm going to be talking
2: about
0: follies, follies in Scotland. And Liz? I'm talking about curling, which may be familiar to some of you out there, but I'm certainly not talking about curling my hair.
1: Before we get stuck into the podcast, we have a virtual event coming up on Thursday the 25th of February. Liz, would you like to tell us what you're going to be covering in your virtual event?
0: Yeah, I'm getting really excited about it. The first one that I've done, you've done such good job so far. I am talking about Edinburgh and the city of Edinburgh is a city of extremes, a city of contrasts. And I'm talking about the development and evolution of the city, right from the days up on Castle Rock, how it developed down the Royal Mile, and then from the old town or old city across to the new town so I'm doing it through the characters who lived in it telling you the stories of the evolution of the city
1: brilliant so that's coming up on the 25th of February if you'd like to book on that drop an email to Podcast at gmail.com and tickets are 15 pounds per device we hope we see you there hope
0: so it should be good Got a lot to live up to with you, pair, but we'll give it a go. Okay, well, let's get on to what we've got in hand today, which is our podcast, the main event. And Susan, what are you talking about today?
1: So I'm going to talk about Schoon Palace, but I've got a question for you two before I get stuck in. When you think about Schoon Palace, what comes to mind?
0: Well, if I think about it, there's a beautiful portrait there of Dido Bell. There's a film made about this female in recent years. Very interesting. I'm sure you might be telling us more about it, so I'll not say any more. What about you, Helen? Well, I think about the Stone
2: of Destiny, the Stone of Scone, when I think about Scone Palace and all the stories relating to
1: that. Very good. See, the first thing that comes to mind for me is the white peacocks. Oh, yes. Because it's the first thing you see when you get off the coach is these peacocks kind of strutting their stuff. And they're just so pretty. So, Scone. Spelt like scone, but not said scone. S-C-O-N-E. And the key thing with the guests is you go to scone for a scone. Scone Palace is fairly new, only built in the 1800s, or rebuilt in the 1800s, I should say. But originally, there was an abbey there. And as Helen says, we had what was called the Moot Hill. This was the crowning place of Scottish kings right up until... Edward came and attacked and took away our stone, which is called the Stone of Destiny. And he was basically trying to take away this crowning place of Scottish kings to prove that he was better than them and he was trying to emasculate the Scots that way. However, he didn't manage to do it before Robert the Bruce was crowned upon that stone. In fact, he was crowned twice, but that's a story for another day. The Abbey lands at Scone were there right up until the 1600s when the palace and the lands were given to Sir David Murray, who was Lord Schoonor, or Viscount Stormont. And it was the third of the title that built the present building in the early 1800s. Now... Just like Inverere, this guy building his new palace in the 1800s decides he doesn't like looking out on the plebs. So he has the whole village moved and the village of Schoon was moved further away a couple of years into the build. And the same thing happened at Inverere when they built the new castle at Inverere. They were all moved as well. What strikes me about a visit to Schoon Palace? Well, it's the home of the 9th Earl of Mansfield and he's been the ninth Earl since 2015, since his father died. What I love about Schoon Palace is the ivories, the carved ivories are amazing. Now, obviously, ivory is not something we want to see these days, not in terms of modern ivory, but these are ancient, well, old ivories going back to the 1500s, 1600s. And they're carved out of one piece of ivory, which gives you an idea of how big the elephants were in those days. And there is a big collection, 70 pieces, mostly collected by the fourth earl. They were came from Bavaria, Flanders, Italy and France. And there was also walrus tusks that were used as well. Other things to see there, well, there's a incredible collection of family porcelain. So the porcelain that comes from Sevres, Meissen, Ludwigsburg, Chelsea, Derby and Worcester. And it is the pink stuff that I like from Madame Pompadour from France. It's lovely. It really is. Orchids as well. It's the largest private orchid collection in the country. I don't know if you ladies did it when you were kids at school. You must have done, because you obviously went before me. <laughs> Sorry, was that a dick? Oh. We're used to it now. <laughs> What's it up a duck's back? Exactly. Do you remember doing papier-mâché at school when you were, like, primary one, two, three? I do. Yes. Well, at school, they've taken it to a whole new level. They have a unique collection of french vernie martin which is basically like doing paper mache but very smooth paper mache that then has some beautiful paintings put on it and then it has a lacquer put over the top of it so it looks like a porcelain dish or a porcelain vase but it's not and there are 70 pieces of an original 120 piece set in Schoon palace the others were bought by the Tsar of russia but they're really quite incredible and they date back to the 1720s so they're lovely Another thing that strikes me about Schoon Palace, well, inside you've got the big, long, great hall, and it is the longest. I think that was 150 feet long, about 42 two to 45 metres long. Great for playing (laughs) spittles (laughs) in. Well, exactly. And with a nice big organ at the end. And of course, Charles II processed along there before he went out to be crowned King of Scotland in the 1600s. So that was quite something as well. So really, it's a great place to visit. It's got huge grounds. So there you go. So that's everything inside. So so amazing stuff. And obviously, Liz talked about the painting of Dido Bell. She was brought up in the 1700s, the middle of the 1700s, and lived until just the early 1800s. And she was the daughter of the nephew of Lord and Lady Mansfield. And her mother, they think, was possibly a slave from the Caribbean. Her father was John Lindsay, and he was a captain and the warship, the Trent warship. And so he came back with the mother and the child back to England. And unfortunately, the mother died. So John Lindsay had to go back to sea. So he asked his uncle and aunt if they would look after Dido. And Dido was obviously of mixed heritage. In the middle of the 1700s, that might be seen as being a bit of a problem, but she was brought up as an equal to Lord and Lady Mansfield's great niece as well Lady Elizabeth Murray and this painting that Liz was talking about is by a Scottish artist called David Martin they originally thought the painting was by Zoffany, but there was a big programme on the TV
2: it was a fascinating programme it that.
1: was when they were trying to work out who it was that actually
2: Faker Fortune wasn't it it was called that
1: was it it's absolutely brilliant their whole series is really good and they worked out it was by a Scottish painter called David Martin so that was really interesting and the link with Lord Mansfield as well is that he was is a judge and he was doing very well in the English court system and he put England and the UK on the pathway to abolishing slavery by establishing that slavery had no basis in common law. Now, it took a lot longer, obviously, to get rid of it, but he did start it. And he also modernised English law and the courts. So that's the kind of inside of Scone Palace. Things that I like on the outside, they've got a fantastic maze that is made of 2,000 beech trees and it's in the star shape. And it was put together in 1991, copper and green beech. So that's quite something. There is a pinetum. That was established in the 1800s, and that was to do with David Douglas, and he was a plant hunter. And if you've heard of the Douglas fir, that was David Douglas, who was a gardener at Schoon Palace.
0: And that's just put me in mind for a future topic, because that would be a good one to do with the plant hunters. An interesting bunch of characters.
1: Definitely. Yep. So if you fancy going to Schoon Palace, it's just outside Perth and it's definitely well worth a visit for both the grounds and for the inside of the castle. So there you go.
2: Oh, that's fascinating, Susan. I mean, I do like Schoon Palace because there's something quite couthy about it as well. It's small enough that you can just take it all in and and see so much. But a couple of things when you were talking there, I think the maze, Susan, was set out, as you say, with these the beach and the, the Copper Beach, yeah. To from the air look like a tartan.
1: Oh, I didn't know about the tartan. I knew it was to look like the star, the kind of the Mansfield star.
2: Yes. I'm sure I've read somewhere to, to be this tartan effect. Oh,
1: it's very smart, though. I really do enjoy going there. And I went in the maze with our coach driver and then kind of halfway through we're like "Um, if neither of us make it out of here what are our guests going to do?
2: Going back to Liz's painting of Dido Bell I went to Schoon Palace with a small group and one of the girls Veronica in the group was of mixed heritage and she just couldn't take her eyes off the painting because it is one of very few paintings where the head of the person in the painting of mixed heritage was higher than the white person and there was another explanation of that on that same program you were talking
0: about susan when i think of screen palace i do like it. i think the staff are excellent yeah the docents are really friendly and helpful but what i remember is the lorry that was dropping off the delivery and came through the front gates and wiped the front <laughs> yes. gates right out
1: <laughs> oopsie daisy somebody was following their sat nav yes I think if I remember
2: correctly, Liz, these gates dated back to about the 12th century or something. Yes, yeah.
0: It was an expensive error.
1: But was it a gate or was it a folly? Helen? Ah, yes, because
2: that's what we're doing. What is a folly? Well, one suggestion is that they are decadent indulgences by people with more money than sense. Or are they just touching attempts to leave a lasting legacy other than wealth? But I think they could be more than that and we'll try and look at them. There's quite a number of follies around Scotland. But one that really stands out is McCaig's Folly in Oban. It was built by a local banker, John Stuart McCaig, to his own design at the end of the 1800s. The aim of the tower was to provide work for the local stonemasons in the winter months and to be a lasting monument to the McCaig family. Nowadays it's more often referred to as McCaig's Tower rather than Folly. Another Folly is Canule Tower near Perth overlooking the River Tay. It was built in the 18th century by Thomas Hay, the 9th Earl of Canoel, to resemble castles along the Rhine. He saw a similarity between the mountainous landscape along the Rhine and the rocky outcrops on his estate, so he built a modest castle on the highest point of Canoel Hill with its tower overlooking the Tay. And if we go further north in Scotland, we've got the Firish Monument, built in 1782 on the Firish Hill in Easter Ross, and it was built on the orders of Hector Munro, a local laird. He was concerned about the impact of the Highland clearances, so he set up a building programme to keep the locals in work. It was said he would regularly roll the stones from the top of the hill to the bottom to extend the time of the build, and he continued to pay the workers. Was this a folly? And what about the Hundimundi Mundi or the Hundimundi, Mundi, an 18th century folly that stands near Kelso in the Scottish borders, commissioned by George Bailey and designed by William Adam, one of the main Scottish architects of the time. He also designed Mellorstain House, which stands in the direct line of the folly. The building is based on a tower that housed a Pictish princess, and its name comes from Bailey's children's inability to pronounce her name, which was Hunimundias And one that's familiar to Liz is the Dunmore Pineapple, built in 1761 by John Murray, the fourth Earl of Dunmore for his wife Charlotte. It's a most unusual building with its large pineapple-shaped cupola and forms part of the walled gardens at Dunmore Park. Top of the pineapple stands well above the surrounding walls and has four large vases surrounding it but these vases cleverly concealed chimneys for the heating system that was used to create a microclimate within the high garden walls to enable the cultivation of exotic plants such as pineapples. Is this a folly? One of the ones I really love, though, is the ladies' Tower at Ely. The Lady's Tower was built for Lady Janet Anstruther so that she could change there when taking her daily swim in the sea. A servant would ring a bell to warn locals to stay away while she was bathing. William Adam was working at Ely House in the 1740s and he may well have designed this tower. And one that we're all quite familiar with, Doona and the Watchtower in Verera Castle. This tower was designed again by William Adam and built in 1748. Its purpose was purely decorative, and it was cleverly sighted on the edge of the steep face of the hill, but not quite on top, so that when seen from the castle and town, it was silhouetted against the sky. And another folly which I love, and is not at all familiar to many people, except Liz will know it, <laughs> is the Temple at Salon. And this is a 24-foot octagonal lookout tower built in 1842. It's situated on high ground with views over the Firth of Forth. I was up there yesterday with my youngest grandson, and we walked right up to it. And it was built by a former sea captain, Archibald Hogg, who was owner of the Bandrum Estate at the time. Some say he built it in order to keep watch on the shipping in the Firth, but others say it was a quiet space away from his wife. So was it a folly or not? But of course, we know it was very fashionable to build structures in the grounds of large houses as part of the landscaping to give interest to the vista from the large windows. So I'm sure, Susan and Liz, you have a favourite folly or you've got follies that you know about. So over to you.
0: Well, it just never ceases to amaze me how little I know about Scotland, because I don't know of half of those, Helen, that you've been talking about. But it's interesting to reflect, you know, is it vanity or was it philanthropy? I think both.
2: I think both, yes.
0: Between them. But it was a time when these were being built, when the halves of the world had so much money that it was a way of displaying wealth, it was a way of giving wealth back to the poor. And we're left with the remnants of these nows which litter our countryside and add interest to it.
1: Yes, and one of my favourite ones is up at Blair Castle because it's a walk I do regularly. Is from the West Drive up and up on the hill above Blair Castle. There's one up there that's made to look a little bit like a, a gateway, I suppose, as well. It gives you great views right down over the castle.
2: Yes, I think quite a number of the follies were made to look like gateways because the one, again, that both of you will be familiar with is the gateway to uh, Taymouth Castle at Kenmore. Yes, And that is down as a folly because it's just, as you say, vanity. is just expressing wealth and privilege. And one that they dare to think of as a folly is the Wallace Monument at Stirling. Now, you know, I don't stand for that, being a folly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And of course, putting a plug in for the upcoming virtual event the equivalent of the Parthenon in Athens, where we have the National Memorial. And of course, people refer to it as a folly. And the people of Glasgow offered to give Edinburgh money to complete the job and they refuse. So it still stands today as a series of columns that was never finished. But I think
2: it's lovely like that. Then when you see it silhouetted, it's absolutely beautiful, isn't it? It is.
0: Athens of the North.
2: Well, I think we could go on and on looking at follies because there are a lot of them around Scotland and some that look like chess pieces, some that just look like big,
0: huge obeliscus, obeliscus. From follies to falling, because I'm taking you out on the ice. I've picked this subject because over the last few weeks, particularly up here in the north of Scotland, we've had some pretty freezing weather, consistently very low temperatures, which have meant that our lochs have frozen which happens most years, but this has been a sustained frost, so we've had quite a depth of ice on the surface of the lochs. And just like you might associate Scotland with golf, Scotland is also the home of the sport of curling, which I hope most of you have heard about, but some of you, it might be a mystery to you. But curling has a strong association with Scotland and it's been taken all over the world by Scots who emigrated. Scotland's home to the World Curling Federation that oversees the sport across the globe and specifies things like the requirements for the equipment, the rules of the game. Basically, it carries out the same role as the Royal and Ancient Golf Club in St Andrews. Curling has been an official sport in the Winter Olympics since 1998 with the Canadians dominating right from the beginning. I think that's most unfair given that the Scots taught them how to play in the first place. They now keep on beating us. It's watched on television by millions of viewers all over the world. They become hooked on it, but most people don't fully understand the intricacies of the game. They know that it's a sport in which players slide stones on a sheet of ice towards a target area that's segmented into four concentric circles called the house. Two teams of four players Each take it in turn to slide polished granite stones towards the circular target. Points are scored for the stones resting closest to the centre of the house. The purpose for each team is to accumulate the highest score at the conclusion of each end when both teams have thrown all of their eight stones. A game usually consists of eight to ten ends. The curling has been played in Scotland since medieval times, with the first reference to a game using stones on ice appearing in the records of Paisley Abbey in 1541. The word curling first appeared in a poem written in 1620 and it describes the motion of the stone as it travels across the ice because the stone bends or curls. The game is also referred to as the roaring game because of the sound that the stones make as they travel across the little droplets of frozen water that form tiny pebbles on the surface of the ice so that the stone seems to roar and make that strange noise. In early times, the playing stones were simply flat-bottomed stones pulled out of the river and so they'd have varied in their size and their shape and their smoothness. You can imagine the search for that perfect stone and then when someone found it, they'd hide it away until the local pond froze over in the winter and competition would begin again. Unlike today, the thrower had little control over the curl or the speed and relied more on luck than the precision, skill and strategy that we associate with the games today. Weavers were known to use the heavy stone weights from their looms and would fit detachable brass handles for the purpose, while other have experimented with wood or ice-filled tins. Remember Peavers, lady?
2: Oh, yes.
0: Fill up a shoe tin and use it as a peaver. Well, during the 16th to the 19th century, the climate usually provided good ice conditions, and most winters, the sport was able to be carried out on local curling ponds. But today, maybe due to global warming the sport has generally shifted indoors to artificial ice. The curling stone, or rock as it's called in North America, is made of granite. And traditionally, the source of this granite would be the island of Ailsa Craig in the Firth of Clyde off the west coast of Scotland. It's rare types of granite that were particularly suited to making the stones. But nowadays, the island is a wildlife reserve. There's strict environmental conditions, which means that no blasting can take place. So getting a granite stone from Ailsa Craig is much sought after these days. Curling is a game of strategy, tactic, skill. And so it's often referred to as chess on ice. It's not simply a matter of launching the stone and hoping for the best. A skilled curler can make the stone rotate slowly on release so that it travels across the ice as it takes a curved path. The direction and pace of travel is then influenced by two sweepers with brushers who accompany the stone as it slides down the ice And under the direction of the skip, the captain or skipper of the team, they use their brushes to sweep and polish the ice in front of the stone, making the stone travel faster and straighter. So there's a great deal of strategy and teamwork goes into choosing the ideal path and placement. The knack of the game is being able to either play aggressively, in which you're trying to put as many stones in play as possible, or defensively where you're playing a lot of hits or drives to take the opponent's stones out of play, and only the stones in the house are considered for scoring. More so than in any other team sport, good sportsmanship or the spirit of curling is an integral part of the game, and I'm told that the winning team, the tradition is that they buy not only a round of drinks, but hot dogs for their opponents. I suppose they need it after all that time on the ice. And of course, ladies, finishing up a bond spiel. A bonspiel spiel is a curling competition traditionally held outdoors on a frozen outdoor freshwater loch, usually held on a weekend. And nowadays they are extremely rare. First of all, because the lochs rarely freeze to the required depth that you need to have about 2,000 people standing on them. But the other one is health and safety. I'm afraid we haven't had a bond spiel since 1979.
2: One of the stories I remember about curling, and keep me right, girls, that I think the great hall at Schoon Palace, Susan, was used to give a demonstration of curling.
0: It was. When I was saying about the skittles, it's that long room that Charles II promenaded down. I understand
2: that Queen Victoria said, I don't know what this game is curling that you keep talking about. And can you give me a demonstration? So they cleared the hall and they said, We'll give you a demonstration, provided Prince Albert decides to take on the become patron to the Caledonian Curling Club. And so since then, it became the Royal Caledonian Curling Club because of Schoon Palace and curling. Oh,
1: very good.
0: So you think that we had planned this or something? There seems to be links, uh-huh. <laughs> a lot of links,
1: <laughs> and things we didn't necessarily know. Somebody else has brought in. Exactly. That's great. I learned how to curl when I was a kid because Pit Lockery, they built a new theatre, so the old theatre building they converted into an ice rink for curling and it had four sheets, so four sheets is just like four, I suppose, pieces and with the teams of either two on each side or four on each side and we had a great time as kids just getting involved and going up and practising you know, if you were bored you'd go up and see if there's any spare ice and you'd go and practise and it was really good, it was a great social thing and a great thing to learn and I played right up until I left school.
0: I remember my father playing but as you say it's now it's indoors it's in ice rinks and most of the ice rinks in Scotland have closed and um, so you've got over 600 curling teams and so there's a great demand for the ice in addition to the people that are using it for skating and so I always remember that my dad when he was playing it was in the strangest hours he would come back at like one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning having only been able to get a match at midnight. A bit like ice hockey isn't? Yeah, and of course, you were talking about moving up and down the ice. It's also dangerous if you don't have the right shoes on because the shoes, one's a slider and one's a gripper. And I know that some people, if they don't have the right shoes, will wrap a sock round about it.
1: In terms of outside curling, obviously, there used to be lots of curling ponds. But up at Blair Castle, the estate staff were expected to turn out for the curling matches that the Duke would put on. And they have a curling exhibition in the gardens they've got these beautiful formal gardens that have been brought back and they have this curling exhibition and it's basically where one of the staff has been censured for not being available for the estate curling match and he was told if that happened again he might lose his
2: job and if you look around in scotland you can see where curling ponds have been yes you can see the very distinctive shapes, it's sort of like, a, like about two lanes of a swimming pool. If you think of that size, that would be your curling rink. And you can see these little shapes in the ground, outside big houses or some of the hotels in Scotland. You'll see the evidence of curling that used to take place.
0: Of course, being up here in the Highlands, every village had their own little curling ponds. You can see them everywhere. And if people are travelling up to the Highlands on the E9, the spine of Scotland, you might stop off at the Highland Folk Museum outside Moor. And there they have restored the club. We have the shed where the people got changed and they have the pond itself and they have all the stones and the, the shoes and the, the brooms that they used, the brushes. So um, I'll post some up on social media this week, but it's well worth a visit to the Highland Folk Museum newton Newtonmore.
2: So is it time to go on to our words, our Scottish words. So Susan, what are you going to have
1: my word of the week is in relation to taking my surrogate dog out for walks up to the folly and you get her back to the car and she's absolutely manky. Manky means filthy. She's a fox red lab, but she's trying to make like she's a black lab.
2: And <laughs> what about Liz? What? What's your word?
0: So my word of the week this week, it's been pretty chilly up in the Highlands, but in Scotland we don't say pretty chilly, we would say it's been pure Baltic. So the wind has been snell, cold, biting wind.
1: Helen, what's your
0: word? My word is, well it's
2: actually two words, because a word and a phrase, and it's what you'd say if you saw one of these follies up in the hillside, you say, sataboot? What's that about? Sataboot? Or you might say, what do you cry, your thing? What do you call that?
1: <laughs> so thank you very much, ladies. Great to speak to you again and look forward to speaking to you again next week, and don't forget we've got Liz's virtual event coming up on Thursday, the twenty fifth of February. Drop an email to Scottish Blethers podcast at gmail dot com to book. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me.
0: Ta-ta the new from me.
1: And if I don't see you
2: through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me.
1: Bye. See ya.
2: Bye.